Okay, so we can turn back to James chapter 1. We're focusing on verses 9 to 12. Just a quick recap on what we've seen so far, from what James has been saying. We've seen from previous verses that James discussing how we are to approach the various trials of life, the testings, the, the tribulations, the, the various challenges that we, we come against as believers, and we must approach them with joy. And that, that God, he's reminding us that God has a plan. He has a plan for every hardship, every challenge, every situation that we face. We know from verse 3, and it talks about, but you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So we know that the, the, it's a test of the genuineness of someone's faith. Are, you, are we in the faith? Because if we are in the faith, we are going to suffer. We will face challenges. We will face hardships. But God has a good plan for our lives. And we shouldn't try and stop that and try and stop the flow of what he's doing. We can't see it from this level. But he is above, he's transcendent, and he can see all things. He's working out everything according to his plan. So let him obtain, let him achieve his objectives. And then we also see that we, James talks about letting God perfect and transform our body, our mind, our intellect, making us spiritually mature through the trials that we face. We must be reminded, the trials that it's saying specifically here are the persecutions that the Jewish Christians were facing of the time. And we know from Acts 14.22 that through many tribulations, it says that we must enter the kingdom of God. Many tribulations, various kinds, multicolored, not just one way. There's many different facets of tribulations and, and trials. But a primary way to understand and to know what God is doing within the trial and the testing is asking God and praying for wisdom, praying for understanding and seeking his face. And there is, not, there is a promise as well that is mentioned. And the promise is that every prayer for wisdom during a trial that God himself will answer Without, it says abundantly, without reproach, that he will give generously to all without reproach. So, so far, James has highlighted trial in the form of persecution for the dispersed Jewish Christians. But now we see in verse 9 to, to, to 11, there seems to be a change in the topic. He's now describing, a, you know, he's pointing at the test of possession and wealth. Verse 9 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. There are things we aim to have, the things we want, the things we desire in life, worldly things that occupy our minds that we think about and ponder upon, and things that we aspire to, we want, we have ambitions in life, you know, um, various different things. And James, all throughout the book of James, he's just talking about, and he's pointing, especially to the rich, those that are rich in possession, and what they're doing with it. Um, they've forgotten God. They've, they've, they've pursued other things. And then they've left behind the true treasure. They've not sought after the true treasure. 
When we look at that first verse, um, the verse 9, the first part, it says, let the lonely brother boast in his exhortation. The Greek word here is, in lonely is, is, is tapinos. Um, it's, it's repeated about eight times in the New Testament, representing a humble person, someone that's brought low because of a tribulation or trial or testing time. So James here, the context is about an economic status of the Jewish Christians here. Many of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had lost all their wealth. They'd vacated their properties, they'd forsaken possessions, they've lived in poverty because of the persecution that they were facing and because of their love for Christ and their faith in Jesus. Now it was coming for the collections to be made, for, uh, made for the, especially for the, Christian, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So Paul often, at many times, you know, he, he, he made collections and donations you know, to, to send back to those that are in Jerusalem. And this, is, this spans across all his, uh, his, his ministry whilst he was on earth. An example of this is 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 to 4. I'll read it, you don't need to turn to it, but I'll read it. It says, Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and to store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany, accompany me. So Paul's primary concern was for the poor, Jerus- poor Christians in Jerusalem. So James is writing at the time to the dispersed Christians, the Jewish Christians. He's based in Jerusalem. Paul is sending aid, money, collections to those that are suffering persecution in Jerusalem. There's no, when we think about this and we look across scripture there was no local church that was estranged to persecutions it wasn't just those in Jerusalem especially during the time of mid 100 AD but this persecution that they faced was extremely different it was quite severe and long lasting around and in around the Jerusalem area so when we see the persecution that they were facing, some, people, some of them losing their lives, they've lost it all, they've lost their possessions, they've been dispersed from their homes, what could get worse? To add to that, to add to their woes, seemingly, there was, during that time of AD to 47 to 49, or in fact, sorry, AD 45 to 46, especially in the area of Egypt, there were severe crop failures. So now you've got, they've been dispersed, they've, they've lost their possessions, and now they're hungry. There's famine. There's, it's difficult to, to fend, yet it's difficult to feed their families also. There's also a subsequent extreme famine occur, occurring in Judea between AD 46 and 47. This is all about 20 years, within 20 years of Jesus ascending. Persecution that's widespread amongst the Jewish Christians. Agabus prophesied in Antioch in Acts 11. He said, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine 
all over the world. This took place in the days of, the, of Claudius, a Herod. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders. So sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. These times of famine would have resulted in mass migration of people, large amounts of people defaulting on debts, taxes. Had Paul not raised collections along with all the other disciples and apostles, many in Jerusalem would have perished. Furthermore, Herod began his own persecutions on Jewish Christians. And we know later on that James was killed by Herod himself. So what does this all have to do with riches? James had a huge concern about the rich folks at the time of writing. He was witnessing the evil committed by these rich men. They required it all. When we look across James, James is very practical. We go straight to the point. We see five different things across the book of James. The first is that the rich were oppressing the poor. When we see James chapter 2, 6, 8, if we turn to it, James chapter 2, verse 6, 8 says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? They're not the one, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name of which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. The rich weren't doing that. They were oppressing the poor. They were acting as judges and dragging those poor Christians to court. They blasphemed the honorable name of God. And the rich even committed fraud. When we read later on in James chapter 5, they, they, they had workers laboring for them on the lands that they owned, but wouldn't pay them the correct wage, would withhold it from them. They worked hours laboring, yet without pay. On the fifth occasion as well that we see in James is that there were these rich men, rich people were hoarding their riches, thinking it could save them in the last days. We looked at James chapter 5, verse 3. It says, Your gold and silver corroded, and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire, because you have laid up treasure in the last days. The rich essentially were enjoying heaven and earth. They, they, they had it all. You know? they, they, could, they felt they could do as they pleased to everyone else, hoarding, keeping everything to, to themselves, blaspheming the name of the Lord because they have riches. They have it all and they could see other people that didn't have any. So what lessons do we learn from James chapter 1? Verse 9 to 12. We look at the riches in Christ. Much of the verses 9 to 11 is taken up by the illustration of the riches. If we notice that, you know, it's all about the riches 
of the rich man, his plans, his achievements, his pursuits, they all fade away. It's interesting when we contrast it to the strong emphasis. If we look at what James is writing about the lowly brother in verse 9, he just mentions just eight words. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. But yet when he's talking about the rich, he brings out illustrations and examples to just hone in and to make the point even more clear. Many of those and the majority of people in Jerusalem at the time were financially poor, poverty-stricken, unable to fend and to provide for their families, we said earlier. And it was estimated about 9 out of 10 people of those Christians lived below the breadline. These early Christians were lacking in financial strength or capacity. Yet they had something. They had something money couldn't buy. They had Jesus. They had Jesus with them. No matter what else they had or didn't have, they had Jesus with them. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 10, 32-36, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is as a great reward, for you have need for endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. There seems to be a correlation between having little and holding fast to what you possess, to what is the true worth. Sometimes we need to stand back and, and analyse what we do have, but whatever we do have doesn't compare to what we have in Christ Jesus. It's when we strip away everything that we've got, there's only one thing that abides and remains, and that's Jesus. That's our desires and our pursuit of him. In contrast, having all things worldly actually makes us miss the point and drowns and blinds us to what is most important, what is most precious in our life. To the poor, persecuted brothers in James, and he, he writes in chapter 5, verse 7 to 8, James writes, Be patient therefore, brothers, unto the coming of the Lord. See that the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also, be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James is referring to those who are suffering, suffering Christians. He's saying, wait for the early rain, the latter rain. In Jerusalem, the, the early rain came in October. So the, the, the rain would come, it would, it would flood the, the parched land, get ready, and of course, it, it, it's preparing the ground for the farmers to come and to sow. And then there was a later rain that would come in mid, would May the following year. That's the rain that would really cause 
all the seeds and the, 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 the plant to really just flourish and to grow. And he's, he's reminding them to, to be patient in the sufferings. The early rain has come. Jesus has come. Jesus has broke into the ground. He's, he's, he's broken the parched land of our hearts. He's broken through and he's come and he's sown the seed himself, the, the bread of life. He's he, himself the, the one that is the seed that was promised from, right from the start. He's saying, wait for the latter rain also. The rain is coming. When he comes back, endure, persevere, go through the trials because he's coming back. The latter rain will come back. It's an assurance. Just the way, same way that there is a, a beginning in, in October, surely the latter rain will come in May. It will come. Jesus will come. Let's look back at James chapter 1. James spends time here unpacking the fate of a man's riches and pursuits. If we're being honest, we've, we've got a lot more than these Jewish Christians ever had. They lost it all. So in some ways, we are rich. We, we've got so much more. This is a warning directly to us. These rich men put so much emphasis and faith in their riches, in their possessions, things that they had acquired. Their vats were full, stomachs were full, barns were full, full of all kinds of possessions, obtained to bring financial security and stability even during the, the months and, and, and the, the, the famine that had occurred. They were okay. One might say that even that they believed that, you know, we were financially, we were, we were financial stewards of our money. We, we, we saved. You guys, you weren't prepared. You know? Um, they were storing away. They might say that they timed things perfectly. They might say of others, well, look, you should have been saving and investing also. You missed a trick. Look where that's got you. Of course, of course we know this is not the right attitude. This is not an attitude that brings glory to God. But this is what these rich men were like. So we see James teaches us four lessons on the true riches of Christ. The first lesson we learn is that salvation is in Jesus alone. How great are the riches of our salvation. They are greater than all we can imagine. To know that, that Jesus, Jesus himself has come to die for us, to save us from our sins, to save us from this life that whatever we go through, we're just passing through. We're just sojourners. We're just walking through. He's saving us to so much more. He's saving us to eternity and salvation is only in Christ alone. What is evident from James' illustration is that all the rich man, rich man has and owns his treasures, his financial astuteness, whatever else that seemingly beautifies his life from, his work, from the worldly perspective is burned up and destroyed in judgment. It counts to nothing. Absolutely everything that he has acquired, when it's weighed up, 
It has no weight. No eternal weight. He looks good on earth. He looks like he's been great financially. He looks like he's, he's done his homework. He spoke to some people about financial savings. He's acquired it all. But spiritually, it's nothing. It's weightless. If we look at verse 11 in chapter 1, it says, For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. The very sun, we know in biology, as Brother Rob would say, <laughs> the sun comes with photosynthesis, right? And it's meant to beautify and to, to make the plant to grow, etc. But this very sun is scorching. It's not bringing forth life. Why? This is judgment here. This is judgment here. The very sun that causes the grass to grow, sustaining its growth, is now so blazing hot that the grass and the flower cannot withstand its rays and its intensity. When the rich man meets God, the creator, the life giver, the sustainer of all things, he deems it worthless. Whatever he has, whatever is attained on earth, it's worthless. It contributes nothing to the saving faith that we have in Christ Jesus that necessitates the followers of Christ. Worldly riches cannot save anyone. It never has and never will. The rich is brought low when he or she ponders and realises the pursuit of acquired money as Solomon says, it's vanity, vanity upon vanity. Chasing, 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 never attaining, and just grabbing on thin air. Nothing, you can't see air, you're just trying to grab it. Never attaining. James reminds us that, that riches are fleeting and that we must take care and guard our hearts against pursuing riches as a way to gain God's approval. Or even earn our way into heaven. Jesus paid it all. Paid it all for our sins. Unto him we owe. We can't pay anything to get into heaven. We can't pay anything for our salvation. We owe our lives to, to, to our creator. To the one who has saved us. The one who's led us out of darkness into his mar- marvellous light. The cross of Jesus brings us all to our knees. Whatever economic status, it brings all of us to our knees. The Queen, Bill Gates, homeless beggar on the streets, must bow down. Must bow down to the King himself. Either to the, to the white throne of judgment for those that do not believe in him, or to the judgment throne of Christ for those that trust I know that their salvation is in Jesus and nothing else. Both the rich and the lonely brother or sister are tested in their approach to money. The lonely brother can easily forget his identity in Christ based on his financial situation. When the lonely brother responds in faith and trust in Christ in the various trials he faces, remaining steadfast, pursuing the knowledge of Christ, pursuing God himself, They are blessed, if we read verse 12, they are blessed to receive the crown of life. The crown of life is a relationship with God, eternal life in God's presence. The crown of life. 
There's only two places in the Bible that it talks about the crown of life, and each time it's, it's after suffering. Those that suffered. It's mentioned here to receive crown of life. Those that persevered, that, that, those that are, are lowly, that are exalted, and know what they've been exalted to in Christ. And then another one is in, in Revelations 2. The church of Smyrna, who was facing persecution, they received, they, 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 the, the, the Bible talks about them receiving the, the crown of life because they also persevered and, and went through the trials and, and stood firm. The person who trusts and has faith in their wealth is blind to hope to secure their eternal status, proves unable to stand firm or persevere when the test of God arrives, but demonstrate, even if they profess to be Christians, that they were not. Such a person will not receive the crown of life or enter into the kingdom of God. We've been talking about this in, in Bible studies in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. You know, what God has given to us. What God has given to us. If we turn to it, just a couple of pages, 2 Peter chapter 1. So that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We have everything in Christ because we've been saved for life, life here on earth, life to endure, life eternal also, and to live godly here on earth. Salvation in Christ alone. Second lesson we learn is that true riches are eternal in Christ. If we look at verse, if we go back to James chapter 1, and we look at how James puts it in verse 9, it says, towards the end, it says, and the, so, towards the end of verse 10. So, and I'll start from the beginning. It says, And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. There is no getting away from it that the grass and the flower eventually return to the ground. Degradation sets in, sets in them, and, and both are destroyed, the, the grass and the flower. So we have the rich man as a grass. We have the flowers, the things that seemingly in, on earth beautifies him. Both are burned up. There, there are about eight passages or more that, that describe the man in, in this context as the grass and, and the flower. It would be good to do some Bible studies into that. But um, the rich man's pursuit and aspirations only for self-gratifying glory without dependence on God, without dependence on Jesus Christ. In the midst of his wealth, he's relying on his own strength, his own wisdom, his own way. He relies not on Christ. And all he can ever attain can be taken, cannot be taken with him beyond death. In fact, the over-reliance on his riches and consequent failure to assess the true currency of faith in Christ alone results in eternal life away from Christ. We're reminded of that story, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man lived his best life now. He had it all. 
But he was sent to hell. He, he was asking, said, Father Abraham, if you just get Lazarus just to give me just a, a drop of water with just his finger, that's all I want. He was in Hades. Lazarus, on the other hand, a beggar on earth, sore wounds, beaten, lowly, suffering immensely on earth, was taken to be by Abraham's side. It's appointed to man to die once in judgment. The rich man begged Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his family members, but to his dismay, Abraham said, even if, if Moses was speaking to them, they wouldn't turn. They both had stepped out of time now. One to eternal condemnation and one to eternal riches, to enjoy eternal riches in Christ. There's a famous uh, saying that says, YOLO, you only live once. And a lot of the youth now, they, they're subscribing to that. You only live once, you know, so just enjoy yourself. Get it all now. You know, but those things, you get it all now, it's gone. What's your eternal gain? James writes in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Listen, my brothers, my beloved, beloved brothers, as God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? The true riches that we have in Christ is to have rich, to be rich in faith. To be rich in faith, to trust Christ in all situations. To never leave his side, to, to continue to pursue the knowledge of God, to continue to run after the things of God, to, to lay aside the weight that keeps us back, that holds us from his presence, to pursue him, to be rich in faith. And it talks about being heirs of the kingdom of God. We're reminded here of the prodigal son. The prodigal son himself, he had heritage, he was with the father, the father had all the riches. But he wanted his treasure now. He wanted his inheritance now. And he, what happened? He took it all. Ran off of it. But he squandered it all. The father was the one with the riches. He forgot. He thought he had the riches. The, the riches belonged always. And always with the father. We mustn't forget that. All he had was the father's. He had to be brought low to appreciate what he had, the riches that he had in Christ, the riches that he had in his father's home, in his dwelling. It was always with the father. Whatever we have is the father's. That leads us to our, our third lesson in James. Contentment is in Jesus alone. James writes at the end of um, James chapter 1, verse 11, Verse 11 says, For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. Its, flowers, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also would the rich man fade away in the midst, midst of his pursuits. Key word there is the midst of his pursuits. The rich man is always striving for more, never achieving contentment. He's always wanting more. How much more can I get? 
In the process of chasing the worldly pursuits, he falls short of his target and his aim. He never got, quite gets it, because it's the mist of the air. The lowly brother may be tempted to believe that, that God just does not care about him. They may feel that sense of worthlessness or lack of approval from God, contrary to reality, to what the lowly brother actually has. What is this feeling founded upon? Often it arises through comparison, comparing one's life with someone else and making the assumption that the, the rich man has no problems. There's no testing of their own. Their life is complete and perfect. God must approve of them. Certainly. More than me. It's a huge error. The rich man for a period of time would have looked at all his achievements and rubbed his hands in glee at the array of wealth he had on display. Yet the rich James is referring to here has one crucial thing missing. They've overlooked the giver in exchange for the riches here on earth. And even though they were never satisfied with all that they have acquired, they are happy to enjoy the heaven here. So I've got heaven. I've got it all. This is my heaven on earth. The worship and love of money has made them an enemy of God. Money has indeed made them feel like God on earth and thus obtain their satisfaction and contentment in this false reality. We can't miss it. It says the, bro- the lowly brother is to be content if we read what he's saying. Because he says there in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The lowly brother is to be content with his exaltation and lifting up because he has gained Christ. Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 4, 11 to 12 about knowing the secret to contentment. He said, in all things I have learned to abase, to abound. I've learned the secret in facing. You know, let's turn to it. Philippians chapter 4. From verse 11. Paul writes, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so sometimes, you know, we, I've, le- I've certainly learned that, you know, Philippians 4.19, that's one of the first verses I learned when I was a young child. I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The context here is that whatever I face, whatever circumstances comes, I can do all things through Christ. Jesus Christ in us. If we're content with Jesus in our lives, then whatever situation we find ourselves, we will have contentment. We will have contentment. We will know that Jesus is enough. And finally... The fourth lesson we learn from James is boasting in Jesus alone. This is referring to our identity in Christ. When we look again at James chapter 1 verse 9, the literal reading here is that although he's saying, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, 
actually, literal reading is that the, low, the brother, the lowly one. That's quite crucial because his identity is, first of all, a brother, a Christian, a follower of Christ, part of the family of God. The circumstances of the believer does not determine the righteous standing of the believer. His identity is always in Christ first. No matter the circumstances, whatever the lowly situations or high situations, identity is in Christ Jesus, the brother, the follower of Christ, the family of Christ. The identity of a true convert lies not in how humble they are in the social context, but rather the exaltation to become an adopted brother in Christ, an adopted son of the Most High. James is encouraging the lowly brother to boast in Christ alone. He's reminding such a person not to miss the point. Don't miss the mark. The mark of a true Christian is that their identity is in Jesus and Jesus alone. What does that mean? It means that whatever social construct, whatever these Christians were facing, whatever, how it looked, they didn't have much, they had it all. They, that, that sense of they didn't have anything was actually false because they had it all. They had Jesus. That's, that's enough. The lowly brother can boast that through, though they may be poor physically, yet they are spiritually rich. Jesus has credited eternal life into the Christian's account. God extends the hand of grace that we know to the humble and opposes the proud and lifts up humble. That hand is strong enough to hold and to pick and to exalt. The rich person makes his boast and puts confidence in their wealth. Notice the difference. The humble person is looking to Jesus, looking to God, looking for strength, looking for guidance, looking for help during the, 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 the most difficult times. The rich person is boasting what they have, they've acquired it, or their astuteness and their, their, their intellect. And they put confidence in their wealth. They boast in that they're rich. And when we look at the scriptures, the lowly is the brother. The rich here is, don't see him, I don't see him being a Christian. That's a missing, that's a missing point here, isn't it? That he doesn't, he's not mentioned as a brother at all in Christ. Their pride is in the title and achievements. The boasting of the rich not only is it temporary, it results in total humiliation and destruction. The rich man is brought crashing down from his lofty status that he has acquired or has been bestowed upon him. Because he thinks he's his own king of his own castle. But when it comes to judgment, when it comes to that fateful day, it's all burnt up. So how can we apply this to us? Well, the rich man had the gospel veiled to him. I said earlier on about how sometimes we have it all and it can cloud us from actually what we truly have, Jesus Christ. We must remember the prodigal son again that he, he had it all and he, he, he thought it was all his, his own strength that he'd, he'd had all this thing and then he wanted it now very much, I need to live my life now, YOLO. <laughs> he was pursuing money instead of the living God. 
Whatever we're facing, whatever, wherever we are in our lives, the pursuit of God has got to be key. It's paramount. It's the only thing that brings salvation to us. It's the only thing that keeps us. It's the only thing that keeps us steady, that keeps us on a narrow path. It's the only thing that keeps us when things of life seemingly, sometimes it looks like we're being blessed, but we must take care and take heed of we following Jesus. Is Jesus our greatest treasure? Because if it's not, everything else is worthless. It's absolutely worthless. So we must ask ourselves questions. Does my pursuits or the things I'm pursuing glorify God? If they're not God, then we can prioritise them and say, actually, let's park this. Let's focus on what's real, what's true, what's lasting, what's eternal. Is God my treasure? Is God the one I look to every day, even in my pursuits? Notice that the, the, man, the, the rich man in his pursuits, he dies, he fades away. But when we're pursuing Jesus, though we may die physically, we gain eternal life. We don't fade away. We won't fade away. He will hold us fast. <coughs> Finally, we must ask us a question. How does our lives demonstrate that God is the greatest treasure? We must show fruits that Jesus, God, is our treasure in our lives. We, we know that it truly is the treasure in us that matters. You know, uh, the Bible talks about that we have this treasure in, in jars of clay. We're weak, we're brittle. We wonder, like we were singing earlier on, we, we fade away we, in so many different ways. We wonder, we go back, back and forth, you know. We doubt God, like James was talking about earlier on. We don't seek God for wisdom in sometimes the trials that we're facing. We don't often turn to God in prayer. Sometimes we miss the point. So let our pursuits be always to know Jesus, to know him, to know his power, to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Awesome. I end on this. First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-six to thirty-one. For I for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let no one boast. Let, sorry, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our boast is truly in the Lord. It's never in our riches. Our boast is in the Lord for the true, lasting riches that we have, salvation that we have, the contentment that we have in him, the eternal hope and the eternal riches that we have in him, and that he's our true and greatest treasure. One steadfastness is in the form, in, in, in any form of trials, is, is rooted and is in love of God and worked out in, as our faithfulness. Are we faithful 
Can we be faithful in every circumstance that we face? Because the blessing of standing in the test, in the suffering, in the trials, whatever forms that they come in, the blessing of, in those suffering is that we attain the crown of life. That's, that's worth more than anything we can attain here. And that crown of life is, when we think about the, the, the gladiators in the ancient world where they, they would contest and, and fight and they receive a, a, a wreath, a crown, uh, for their, 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 as they warfare and they engage, we also will, will face many challenging um, battles that will test our faithfulness, that will test our grounding in the Lord, that will test our, our faith in Christ. Um, but if we hold on, if we persevere, if we trust in Jesus, if, if he's the one that, that we, we trust in alone, um, he will keep us to the very end.